COVID issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 256 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I got fist bumped via Lima. From where? Just walking down the high street. Walthamstow riddled with lemurs. Uh, now, at the Cotswold Wildlife Park, which is absolutely amazing, and was an anniversary outing, which was totally lovely. And there's a little section called Madagascar, and lemurs are just free roaming. Amazing. And they do say, don't touch the lemurs. But I was like, what if a lemur touched me? And that's what happened. Fair enough. Did you put your fist out for the lemur? He put his fist out. And so I was like, okay. Fair enough. This fist him. Just following your lead, buddy. So cute. God, I love the Cotswolds. It's beautiful. Yeah, they are lovely. I love a lemur. Come on. <laughs> and lemurs. <laughs> it's just a, a marriage made in heaven, which indeed is what we were celebrating. I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and public service announcement that you think that people would know. Don't leave your dogs in cars with the windows open in the hot weather. The windows open? Yeah. Isn't that the best thing to do to a dog yeah. in a car? Why would you, you? I mean, don't leave them in a car, but if you have to, leave it with the window. Well, just don't leave them in the fucking car. Because what happened to me at the weekend was I went to home base. It's on an industrial estate. And I pulled in. And as I was just driving, albeit very slowly, down the car park, a dog jumped out of a car because the window was open too much. Jumped out, ran in front of me. I had to brake. It got very distressed. It ran round in circles for a bit. I got out of the car and it fucked off into Dunelm, where it then caused absolute chaos. And bought some scatter cushions. We bought some very reasonably <laughs> priced uh, photo frames. Yeah. It bought some garden art and then <laughs> it came back out. No, it was very distressing for it. So just don't leave your dogs in cars at all uh -huh. because windows not open enough, it's going to suffocate. Windows going to open too much. It's going to run around like a dickhead because dogs are dickheads, albeit lovely dickheads, in a panic. And I nearly hit it with my car. Why did someone take their dog to Dunelm? Oh, I don't know. I don't think they were in Dunelm. I think they were in one of the many other shops that there are on that industrial estate. Why did estate? they take their dog to PC World? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. To Furniture Village or wherever they Carpet were. right. Yeah. Top styles. We could go on. Uh, none of these people are sponsoring us, so you two need to stop. Sorry. <laughs> uh, well, three for three, guys. I'm Jen Offord, and I've been to the zoo. Hooray for animals. Saw a romp of otters, which is the... Uh, oh, so lovely. Yeah, someone else is feeding them, but we managed to kind of gate crash their feeding session. It's probably the second best moment of my life, to be honest. Live is the first of. Were they eating their dinner off their tummy, which is the best thing that otters do? No, someone like dangled, I presume a fish, I didn't really see, something over the side. I mean, like a zookeeper, not just a person. And you've seen you've seen the, <laughs> the video footage of it. One of them came over like, and then all of them just like, like absolutely going so loud. Bulu. And my favourite thing about the little video is you can hear a boy in the background go, whoa, like, just having the time of his life. It's fantastic. Lovely stuff. I've fed otters. I've been the person feeding oh, otters. Mick. They're amazing. You can get it as an, a, an animal experience. So, you know, you pay and it goes to their upkeep and you get to give an otter a fish and it's fucking amazing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's definitely a future ambition for when Lyra's a bit more like, hey, these animals are cool, rather than like, can we go to soft play now? Which is, yeah, you know. It's a romp of otters. You saw a romp of mm -hmm. otters. I saw a crash of rhinos. Incredible collective wow. noun work. Wow. 
Coming up, I talk to journalist India Rakusan about all things witch-related, including her new podcast, Witch. I'm going to spell that, W-I-T-C-H. We do a lot of spelling in that interview. We spell a lot of words out. As opposed to the uh, almost free legal advice service. We're not talking about consumer rights here. Like a who's who of witches, would that be which witch? Which witch, yeah. I chat to actress Amber Anderson, star of a new production of The Shape of Things, about societal pressures, controversial characters and not being a Nazi. And as ever, I round up this week's sporting action in Jenny Off the Blocks. I think all our guests are not Nazis, to yeah. be fair. I don't think we've ever had one that There's was. There's a reason why we talk about not being a Nazi. She played Diana Mitford in Peaky Blinders. You'll you hear it in a bit. She talks about not being aligned with her character's views, basically, which is, is good. Good news. Fair dues. And in Mated or Dated, brace yourselves as we discover whether I've ruined everyone's childhood forever. That's right. We watched 1988's Big Q Chopsticks. Hi, Hannah here. Hello. Hello. <laughs> that voice you're hearing is India Rackerson, journalist and host of a new podcast, Witch, which is available to listen now on BBC Sounds or week by week on Radio 4 on Tuesday nights. Welcome to Standard Issue India. Thank you. Very exciting to be here. 13 episodes this podcast has, which clearly means that you yourself are a witch. Case closed. <laughs> Burn her. <laughs> I do know, however because I've been listening. You did actually flirt with the idea of witchcraft yourself as a youngster, didn't you? I imagine if we all take a deep, hard look at our pasts, then we've somehow flirted with witchcraft in some way, shape or form, especially when we were little, right? We just believe in magic. You're just born believing in magic unless somebody sort of squashes it out of you extremely yeah. early. Something that I wanted to do in the series is explore where that feeling, that sort of letting yourself believe in magic and enjoy magic where does that feeling go when we hit puberty some people either have like a massive teen witch phase right mm -hmm. or you just start sort of reasoning everything and just trying to be all grown up as quickly as you possibly can and I definitely had a lot of like a very firm grounding in the idea of magic I so wanted things to be magical I wanted to be able to fly I had a little log in the in the woods that was called the secret keeper that I would go and talk to and sell my wishes to and um we'd give little offerings oh is that your familiar yeah, talking of witches A there cat. goes for my familiar yeah yeah you accusing me of witchcraft <laughs> I see you <laughs> no definitely I felt I loved the idea of witches I I loved the idea of magic I did some spells with my sister and we had a little spell book and but I I think if all of us have a little think back we'll find some form of witchcraft in our past or the, some dabblance with magic. I find that quite delightful, a story, actually, because I was the complete opposite. I found out there wasn't a Father Christmas and my entire faith system in absolutely everything collapsed. Oh, no. How old were you? Eight, something like that. And I just, yeah. no, I just immediately became, and I'm still a really, really sceptic. I use sceptic with the lowercase s. I mean, I can clearly see the appeal of it because it's about power at mm -hmm. a time when you feel really powerless and it's about mm -hmm. community at a time that you feel really isolated yeah and it's about like anger and it's all these things you feel when you're a teenager like rage and chaos and again I just think it's that pull away from this like being allowed to be imaginative and magical and playful this yeah. pull towards adulthood 
and you're like stuck in between these two places. So I think it just spoke to loads of us because mm. it was like, yes, yes, this is how I feel. I want to be able to summon demons and magic and be powerful and yeah, and believe that there's, an, there's something else apart from this quite tedious world that seems to be unraveling in front of us. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think as well, you know, let's call it a religion because for the sake of calling it something, because it is a belief system. It's one of the few religions out there that doesn't seem entirely designed to make women feel terrible about themselves at the same time. I I actually said, like, we can sort of casually call it religion, but I would really hesitate to call it religion, actually. Wicca is is a sort of formalised religion with more rules and sort of structures to it. That's a pagan religion. But I don't think that many of the witches would really say that they are practicing a religion at all, actually. What I've found from talking to witches is that it's very individualised. It's very personal. It's not like there is a way to do spells or there is a way to do a ritual for winter or to summon luck or to Mm. give love or things like this. There's not a way to do it. And it's very, again, it's really creative. It's really playful. It's very imaginative. And it's very personal to the individuals. I think... Maybe lots of people come to witchcraft looking for there to be rules. And there are a gazillion books you can read (laughs) on it. And, you know, there's all the spell books under the sun. You can hit witch talk, you can hit YouTube, you can hit Instagram for inspiration, things like that. But I think, I'm hoping that most witches, if if they listen to this, would agree with me that one of their key things is that it's really individual and you just sort of formulate it yourself. And you can believe in whatever gods and deities you want to. You know, that could be a sort of ancient Roman goddess of a river or it could be the stone pig in your back garden. It could be, you know, whatever you want it to be. But this is where it gets really complicated, right? In that the, and, and what I think is really interesting about exploring the word witch is what you've said there is that it's it's a it's a belief system that doesn't what was the word you used doesn't make women of... feel terrible about themselves exactly so the the mythical idea of the witch is a very female image and so it makes sense that the idea of the witch has been co-opted for sort of numerous battles i suppose along the lines of feminism but also it's not just about that I suppose it's about people on the margins, people who feel like misfits. It's not just about feminism. It's not just about women. But I think what's what's going on with the word witch, the really interesting, difficult interplay, is that there's the, the mythical, legendary, the folklore of witch, and mm. then there are the witch trials. And what's happened is that they have become merged. Mm. So people think... It is amazing the number of, like, not the number, I don't have numbers, but it is amazing how often people think that the women who were killed in witch trials were witches, as we would believe Morgan Le Fay of Arthurian legend to be, or Cersei. But they weren't, of course. This is, you know, a hideous miscarriage of justice that happened right the way across Europe that was exported to the colonies that influenced so much that we know about the world. Something that I think has been so interesting for all of us in the series to explore is that very awkward interplay between the two and how one word doesn't serve the other. So by believing in witches and that they exist, it's somehow playing into this myth that's been carried down from the witch trials that the women who were killed and or you know, not even just killed, they were not just, you know, one being just killed, but <laughs> many, many more were tortured yeah. and terrified and lost loved ones. And it wasn't just women, you know, it had a huge impact on the men in society and it was people on the fringes of society. But those two... Those two kind of, oh, there are many, many different ways of looking at the witch, but all of them have become sort of merged and mushed and melded. And I think it's kind of really important that we unpick what 
the stories of all of them so we kind of understand better they all tell us something about where women are where we are as women where we've been placed in society but they're different threads different stories and I think that's been really interesting to explore yeah definitely because I I was thinking when I was listening that you know there was a point in history where women would be saying I am not a witch and everyone would be saying yes you are Mm. whereas I think if you told someone today that you were a witch the answer would be no you're not (laughs) (laughs) yes very true (laughs) it's like a real irony there that it's it's one of those things that I don't know it's like you don't get to identify as as one somebody has to identify you mm. as one which mm-hmm. kind of leads me to the question the 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 women that you spoke to that do identify as witches that's the word they use about themselves were there themes were there characteristics did they share things in common or were they coming from a really broad spectrum of society i think they come from a really broad spectrum of society but there are definitely things that hold them all together. Many times they've experienced something in life that has left them feeling very left out, unlistened to, on the edge, on the margin. You know, not all of them identify directly as women. Many of them are trans or non-binary. And that's, you know, being a witch is sort of for them about kind of finding power in a world that's trying to pigeonhole them into something, a particular place. I think what they all have in common is a reverence for the world and nature they Mm. all see that the planet is in a state of hideous decline they are all very playful i loved meeting every single witch they were all really really different they have like all very different people they're not a type of person i would say which i was really pleased to discover as we headed off into it i was like oh what if they're all very like white middle class new ages right yeah they are not, and they're like as a there's not there's anything wrong with that, but like that you know they're a real range of different types of people and different types of experiences and backgrounds and upbringings. Very kind, very good listeners, very playful, very creative, interested in. They, do you know what they are all interested in trying to think in a different way? Hmm. I think that that definitely unifies them. They are interested in other ways of thinking, other ways of telling stories, hearing stories. When I heard about your podcast. Oh, go on, tell me, what was your reaction? Well, I sent it to my colleagues because I really wanted to talk about it, but I was a bit concerned that they'd say we talk about witches too much on this podcast. Uh-huh. And they both replied back, there is no such thing as too much talking about witches. Yes, I agree. There was a point, and this long-held view, obviously aided by the crucible, that the witch hunts were a result of like a mass hysteria. Mm-hmm. And I can see that that obviously played a part. And then there's maybe not so widely held, but certainly across the people we talk to, this sort of feminist analysis of witch Mm. hunts, you know, that it was Mm -hmm. about misogyny. Mm. And I can see that that obviously played a part. But it seems the more I learn and the more I read about it, the more I realise that the whole phenomenon of witch hunts is way, way, way more complicated than that. There's politics involved. Politics, religion, science, there's place, there's... You will have heard one of the great things in um, if you've listened to all the episodes about the belief in fairies. Yes, yeah, possibly being. I don't want to spoil it, but like fascinating this theory that witch trials happened in places where there was not a very strong belief in fairies. There was no other place to sort of place blame for problems and issues that were in society. I just thought it was really fascinating. Yeah. It's extremely, it's extremely complicated and. 
we definitely go into the history of the witch trials, but we don't we don't attempt to kind of fully unpick it. You know, mm. there have been other podcasts that do such yeah. a thing. When Salem was happening, and I, I've been to Salem, I've done the old tourist trek of Salem, oh, obviously. Yeah. And that's the 1690s. And at, at the same time that that's happening, over in Cambridge, where I live, one of the greatest scientific minds ever, Isaac Newton, is yeah. trying to make gold. You know, there's just no, there's just no accounting for what passed for sense in people's minds in those days. No. I don't think. No. When I read Malcolm Gaskell's *The Ruin of All Witches*, which is so so brilliant, yeah, his main—it's not character because she's a, an actual historical person, but because it's written like fiction, it, it comes across that way. Mary Parsons had—it's so clear you could just tell it from reading it. I mean, she accused herself of being a witch, but it's so clear that she had postpartum psychosis. It's so obvious to the modern eye that, like I say, there's just so much more going on it's sort of politically and, like you say, sexually and all of this stuff tied up in it. It's so, so fascinating. It is fascinating. One of the voices that I have most loved that we have in this series is Sylvia Federici, who's the author of Caliban and the Witch. She's a historian and a feminist, and she's done a lot of work looking at how the witch hunts in early modern Europe align with the rise of capitalism and something called the Enclosure Acts, where land started to become much more privatised and taken away from communal use. Totally brilliant, and her argument is extremely compelling, and it is sort of upheld by many great historians of that period. But it is just sort of looking at... The world was changing so fast. Exactly like you say, there was there was not necessarily... It wasn't like there was this, you know, everyone sort of goes, oh, the great enlightenment was coming and mm. all this huge change. And but, but but thinking was still it was still just people thinking. This is <laughs> this is this is the point, right? It's people thinking. And those thoughts that were created back then, the way that, um, you know, women became marginalized, women were not seen as wage workers as capitalism grew out of feudalism the way that they were separated from the land, communal land that women sort of hung out in a lot and from their friendships. There's a really interesting bit in the series where we talk about the word gossip and how the word gossip was a really used to be an extremely positive word mm. about female friends and friendships and how that got dismantled along, you know, it's running parallel with the witch hunts. Anyway, there is all this sort of like really big change happening that, in, that informs the way that women think. What's startling is how really old ways of thinking you know like the thoughts of these early modern medieval men often perverts often they're drunkards and they write down these canons these witch hunting bibles or they mm. write down information or ledgers or they sort of lead trials and that writing they've written through all their like smeary glasses and the smudgy <laughs> fingers and like dirty biscuit crumbed beards i imagine holds true today and that is something that we try to do in the series. It's like, look at the way that what was happening, the thinking in the witch hunts, whilst it may not have been an attack on women, like a sort of targeted misogynistic attack, it was extremely misogynistic. Yeah. And it killed thousands of people. And the legacy of that is very literally haunting. You know, we've got a whole mm. episode, which is one of my favourite episodes, about the word hag and the way that ageism, the way we view older women began... Well, not well. I mean, it's sort of like age old, but it it was really heightened during the witch hunts, and then how that has been perpetuated through time. So that's kind of what the series 
the point of the series and what we always wanted to do was take this word witch and look at it the way it's used as an accusation or um, something to diminish someone, make someone feel small or make someone feel powerful or empowered and just why and what that history is and have a real like close examine it. Because, you know, I, it's really easy to sort of think we've come really far. It's amazing how this the thinking of really like centuries ago just rumbles on quietly and we're not we're not properly peeling back the layers and going why do we think that thing and is it because some bloke who was drunk in the 15th century put it down on paper yes it is Mm -hmm. i mean as someone who's approaching 50 who lives on her own with a lot of books and cats Mm -hmm. i mean there's a word for me yeah (laughs) and and talking of like the mad books that people write i mean the hammer of witches Mm. Uh, there's a man who accuses someone of being a witch because he, oh, I'm going to use masturbates. He masturbates until he passes out. And I passes mean, out. Look, yeah. look what you made me do. Look exactly. what you made me do. It's just, it's insane. I, I, yeah. I mean, that I could almost imagine being on TikTok as we speak, someone saying something similar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And all this stuff of like loads of stuff in the, the Hammer of Witches, the Malleus Maleficarum, which is stealing men's penises or their member or their virility and this kind mm-hmm. of the humi- women are out to humiliate men you know that feeling that if you were at all vocal or powerful or sexual or it was all just going to backfire on you as a man if you engaged with it you yeah. know don't go near them very dangerous witches I do feel like a couple of things have really sort of bubbled up for me from the series and one is ageism and how we do not talk about ageism until we are older and then so then what happens is the conversation stays in a place where it's kind of already too late. Yeah. And actually something that folklore and like really, really ancient stories were great for was looking at the value of everyone in community. And um, that's something that we explore in the series. That's really stood out for me. But also death, I think something that all witches have in common, back to your, one of your first questions, is this remarkable ease with the idea of death. Not Not that it's easy and they love it or they enjoyed the concept or anything like that but they're not afraid to be creative and explore how you might look at or conceive death or grief or you know they're not afraid to go I feel really fucking sad and broken and heartbroken and there might be something I can do that helps me do that Mm. that helps me sort of address it conquer it think about this person it might be writing something down it might be doing a spell it could be doing a seance and I think it's really easy for us to sort of turn our noses up at rituals like that around death as sort of the skeptic in you for example Hannah would be like well all seances are shams and it's ridiculous grief is the hardest thing in the world for us for any of us to get our heads around there are no answers it is the great unknown we don't understand it it's the biggest form of separation anxiety we can experience in our lives and it breaks us if you find solace <laughs> hello yeah see he's going to tell you <laughs> little cat I'm like yeah listen listen to <laughs> if you find solace in contacting you know thinking I don't want to say like thinking you can but like because people really believe that they can you know they're not they're not all just like shams and charlatans people believe that they can contact and make contact with the dead and people who've gone before them if that brings you comfort you know who who are we you might be surprised to learn that I agree with you because because I because like I say I was raised a catholic and catholic is probably of all the religions the most close Mm. to like magic I mean transubstantiation is literally magic it's, yeah. You are supposed to believe that this wine that came from the supermarket 
and these these bits of wafer are now actually like mm. flesh that's and blood. That's an important part, isn't it? Yeah. It's really, really important. Yeah. Absolutely. And to yeah. me, what's the difference between asking me to believe that and asking me to believe that people can commune with spirits? I mean, it, it's all mm. the same to me, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And if it does people good and it doesn't do other people harm, I'm, a, I'm an atheist, but I'm not a hardcore atheist, I have to say. Mm. I'm a... I'm very libertarian on that. And that's sort of what lots of witches say. Do what you want, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone. A lot of what we look at with the witch is the way that the witch has been used as a form of protest. So the symbol of a witch and why that's really, really powerful. So we talk a little bit about the feminist group in the late 60s and 70s, uh, witch, W-I-T-C-H. I'm not just spelling witch for you. That's sort of, (laughs) you know, it was bullet point. It stood for women, just in case... Just in case anyone listening would like to know how to find the podcast, it's W I T C H. If anyone thought it was know. a consumer podcast that we were we were talking about, yeah. But it stood for Women's International Terrorist Conspiracy from Hell. Cool. <laughs> yeah, really cool. What a great, what a great name. I'm, I'm, I'm sign me up. In the late sixties, they sort of they were basically anti-capitalist and they stormed. They they marched down to Wall Street and they just put a big hex on capitalism. Apparently, the stock market did fall by 13 points the next day, but coincidence could be. Who's to tell? Exactly, who's to tell? We spent time with a family in the Thames Valley who were being evicted under a Section 21 no-fault eviction, which is obviously you're probably hearing about quite a lot in the news at the moment with the renters' reform bill Mm. um, that's just been introduced into Parliament, not yet passed, uh, where they're planning to scrap Section 21s. But this community have gathered under a banner of a witch called Esme Bogart, which they've just created. And basically it means that none of them have to put their names on a dotted line in form of protest at this Section 21. And they have this sort of omnipient um, or omniscient. Which one would she be? Both. Both. (laughs) Yeah, she's both. um, Being who who basically represents them and their fight against this eviction. It's a family of five kids, two adults, lots of complications going on for them there. And, and, and so that's a whole episode that looks at, you know, land and power and who are, you know, it, the witch has taken us to a place where we examine, you know, what percentage of our land in the UK is actually available. Mm-hmm. Can people actually live in and own who owns it? How are the, how is the power balance in this country still so, so top heavy one of the things I think you'll like, Hannah, being a smaller sceptic, is <laughs> a, a really great episode that we've done about spells and magic and looking at the science behind it. So unbelievably, there is a... Not unbelievably. I believe it. Some people will find this unbelievable. There is a science to magic. And that, um, we've spoken to some experimental psychologists and um, anthropologists and scientists and placebo experts and looked at the way that magic as a concept works and also explored what is magic so that takes us into the um the human consciousness so the sort of the very fact that you can have an idea pop into your head in itself is inexplicable quite magical we look at quantum physics and the um the theory of entanglement which is extremely magical Uh, but it's not to say that magic starts where science stops that's not what it is it's looking at exploring these very tangible ways that we can talk about magic and also what I loved actually in the series is we sort of go really deep into the way that the natural world does impact us because that's so important to witches so we've done lots of we've spoken to a brilliant author called Lucy Jones who's pulled together loads of great research on you know the, the feeling of 
or like if you look a w e just just spelling stuff for you do you (laughs) you enjoy your guests coming on spelling stuff for you (laughs) (laughs) but looking at kind of the way that you know there is scientific evidence for the way that if you go and stand in front of an amazing massive waterfall or like a huge mountain or the the moon looks so incredible you think you're going to bite your hand off that feeling of awe that comes over you actually has an anti-inflammatory effect on the body reduces cytokines you know there there's reasons why these magical feelings have extremely positive impacts on our body and that's I mean, I have 100% taken that on. And and I think that goes back to this feeling when you're a kid of enjoying, really relishing and enjoying the feeling of magic. Mm. And you're allowed to do that and you're allowed to be playful and imaginative. And then suddenly you're not allowed to and it doesn't quite fit with society. And it's not, that's not being an adult. And that's not being a grown up. But what if you just let yourself feel all those feelings again? And yeah. not only just because it's fun, but because it's really good for your body. India, this has been delightful talking to you. What else have you got coming up? Have you got some more, anything on the go? Yeah, so very excitingly, we are now starting production on a follow-up to a series I made called 28-ish Days Later. Oh, Um, right, yes. Yeah, it is working title, Child. I think that's probably definitely what it's going to be called. Can you spell that for me, please? Sorry, yeah, (laughs) T-S. It's got silent T-S and then (laughs) C-H-I-L-D. No, Child. And uh, what we're going to do is we're going to look at from the moment the point of conception to the age of one we're going to look at the growth of a fetus and a baby and a child um but all the way through that we're going to look hand in hand much like 28 ish days later does much like which does we're going to kind of unpick the science behind it all but also the kind of the social look the historical look at pregnancy at birth at the concept of a baby and childhood and try and make something that feels for anyone who's go, it's not it's not for women who are pregnant and going through birth. And I, I really hope it it reaches out to the to those people. This is a series about life and the beginning of life, and how the from the moment of conception, things are happening that will affect the rest of your life forever. Mm-hmm. Um, not in a terrifying way. It will be hopefully light and really enjoyable. And but I'm so excited to make it. I think. Birth is one of those massive, great unknowns. It's definitely an experience I found very complicated in my life. And um, and I'm just, yeah, I'm really excited to make it. And we've got a fabulous team on it. I'm joined by actress Amber Anderson, who is appearing as Evelyn in a new production of The Shape of Things at the Park Theatre in Finsbury Park. Hello, Amber. Thanks very much for joining me. Hi, thank you for having me. It's really nice to be here. Can you tell us, first of all, a little bit about the play and about your character, Evelyn? It's a really, really hard play to tell anybody about without completely ruining the ending. So what I've been saying is that it's almost like a romantic comedy with a very dark twist at the end. And it asks questions about how obsessed we are with how we all look and how everybody else looks. It asks questions about morality within relationships when it comes to how much you might be wanting your partner to change for you. And it also asks questions about what art is and what what can be 
called art and how subjective is it? And that's a really vague answer, which I'm realising is probably a really annoying answer. But it sort of follows these two couples who were at college in the Midwest in the late 90s. And it kind of follows the goings on within those relationships and how they all change in their relationships, if that makes sense. And it's really hard to say anymore without ruining a really, really great ending. Okay, so I know what the ending is because I've looked up the plot this morning. Okay, uh, okay. Do you think I've just described it okay? I think you've done a great job, absolutely. Okay, great. And I hope that I'm not going to be too spoilery. So since you've done such a good job of not being spoilery, it's interesting yeah. that you're saying it's about the obsession with what we all look like because the central character is a guy and it's sort of about what he does to himself, right? Do you think that those pressures apply to men in the same way that they do to women? I think it's increasingly going that way, but I don't know. I think it's in a very different way. I think that women have a lot of pressure on them by men and therefore themselves, if that makes sense, because I think we then internalise very misogynistic ideals and then almost inflict them on ourselves sometimes you know what I mean but it Mm. feels like men and or society is kind of the starting point of all of that as in I feel like as a woman if I had grown up in a forest somewhere without any of the conditioning that we all had as children and as teens I don't know if I would look or dress or walk or sound the same now I definitely think it's the place speaks to the kind of social media generation the Instagram generation I think it'll be really interesting to see what young people think of it when they come and watch it because I think we now all have this third influence in our lives which is social media that creates a very weird and overwhelming self-consciousness all the time I think even if you try to not take it too seriously or try to stay off it as much as possible, there is still this constant comparison and looking at other people's lives and thinking that their lives are perfect and you're the only one that's struggling. And so I think the play does kind of speak to that thing of how much do we do for other people, basically, and how much do we change ourselves in order to try and please some other kind of ideal that has been made by somebody else who we don't even know, which is the mad thing to me. Not that I really did much before lockdown, but lockdown was definitely the thing that made me go, why am I wearing anything other than like elasticated waistbands and (laughs) (laughs) like flat shoes and like baggy t-shirts? And I think for women, especially, there's a lot of like us kind of tying our bodies up and like Mm. holding them in and doing things that actually restrict our breathing and restrict our voice and restrict our comfort. And you do kind of go, what am I doing this for? Who is this for? And it's really interesting because in the play, we've, we've been working a lot with this amazing voice coach called Tess Dignan, who does voice at the Globe in London. And, you know, the first thing she talked to us, the, the, the female cast about was our bellies and how to like basically let go of our bellies. Because as a girl, you just, I anyway, have spent my whole life trying to keep my stomach in and trying to keep my waist small and trying to whether it's just wearing high-waisted jeans or, Mm. you know, like even just like tight belts around a dress or whatever it is. It's like I have constantly worn things in a way that has literally stopped me from being able to breathe properly. Mm. And it's really interesting when you do these, these exercises with this voice coach because the minute you kind of learn how to breathe into your breath, your whole body gets stronger again. Mm. And she even does an exercise where she'll try and push us over. Like she'll She'll put her hand on our backs and she'll go, don't breathe properly, just breathe into your chest. 
and she can like completely push you over. And then the minute you breathe into your diaphragm, you're you, you're really strong and really grounded. And I just thought that was such an interesting, I guess, example of how like over centuries, our bodies have been literally weakened by fashion and by this sort of outside influence, basically, which isn't to our benefit at all. I've definitely felt as a woman being an actress, like walking into auditions or walking into rooms where I have to like hold myself in a hopefully a strong way I have fear about that that my boyfriend doesn't have at all yeah you know and he will walk into a room and be like hi guys like very much the energy of I deserve to be here if I get this job great if I don't I'm also fine with that whereas I feel like I've walked into auditions for years going like please love me (laughs) please please give me this job the only thing I can really put that down to is like the difference we've had in our experiences and what we've been told we deserve or don't deserve by the world I think there's so much at the moment or I feel a lot of this sense of like indignation almost at like wait why did I just do that to myself when actually I haven't even thought about whether or not I like that yet Mm. you know whether I want to look like that that's just very much an ideal that's kind of been set by an outside influence which I think is crazy and I think that women I definitely feel like I've had that since I was four. You know, when I look back on my childhood, I think about Disney movies and even just things my parents said to me or friends or people mm. who meant very well. But I think I I definitely grew up with this idea of what I needed to look like and what I needed to be like and what I needed to aspire to. And I think men do have that too, but I think in very different ways. I think that's kind of what the play speaks to a lot as well. And I think that my character's, I suppose, sort of mission is to hold a mirror up to that and hold a mirror up to society and say, listen, we're all doing it. So that sort of leads nicely into my next question, which is about Evelyn. Because as you said, the the twist is quite dark, isn't it? Is it easy to find sympathy for Evelyn? Because certainly like on paper, she seems pretty manipulative and yeah and and not not very nice yeah yeah I mean listen she definitely makes different life choices to to the ones I would make I actually think that's a really interesting question because this play was first put on just over 20 years ago Mm -hmm. and I think it's really interesting putting it on now and even just being in the rehearsal room and doing it for the last month with everybody and seeing different people's reactions to her and to him and what she does and what he does and I think that I wonder now if the if the balance is slightly more balanced actually in that I think 20 years ago there was definitely this sense of she's bad and he's a victim when actually a lot of the stuff he does in the play is quite morally ambiguous as well and in some ways she has a point she doesn't go about it in the right way at all and she goes about it in a very toxic way I think but she has a point which is that I think men do this to women all the time and I think what she does that's shocking is that in this situation it's a woman doing it to a man she's you know extremely um careless and manipulative and she goes about what she does in a very unpleasant way very cruel way but I think at the heart of it for me as an actor anyway or the thing at least that I've used to sort of I suppose find sympathy for her or connect to her in some way is that in some ways it's almost like a female revenge story where you think okay this person wants to change the world in some way but why do they want to change the world and for me that comes from the experience that we all have 
I think, as as women, which is just constantly feeling unsafe, constantly feeling scrutinized and judged and even preyed upon and sort of getting to a place where it's like, do you know what? I just can't do this anymore. I want to give them a taste of this. And that's not fair or kind, but I can kind of understand the rage that that comes from if that makes sense and so I think to answer your question yeah I have found some sympathy for her but it's also acting and so Mm. obviously I definitely wouldn't do what she does um, that's for sure. Is it hard (laughs) as an actor I'm thinking about after the Happy Valley finale saw James Norton being interviewed about Tommy Lee Royce right and and, uh, Mm. that's quite an extreme example obviously also there's a lot of debate about this at the time as well like he was able to find the human humanity in this mm. character and I was wondering do you do you kind of have to be able to find the humanity in the people you play is it hard to do it if you can't really see their perspective I think you should try I, I feel like you're not doing your job properly if you don't at least try and what I mean by that is I think in my opinion if you were to go into a job going oh they're just the baddie or they're just the evil one mm. I, I feel like my instinct anyway is that that would leave you with a slightly two-dimensional person you know whereas I feel like the really juicy bit is always when you manage to find ultimately the place it's coming from and the sort of emotional place that that might be coming from because it's always backed up by something it's always backed up by some rage or some sadness or humiliation or something and it is really hard sometimes and I've I've actually funnily enough this job and the job I did before this I've played really quite questionable women Mm. in terms of what they did and how they chose to lead their lives. And it is really hard when me, Amber, as a person is, is trying to find something in common with a Nazi or a a woman who makes it her mission to discriminate against people. But I think there's always some kind of emotion at the root of it that you can connect with as a person and then the rest of it is almost just window dressing in a way I think all of us are good and bad and I think it's always possible to go oh maybe she did that because she was really really made to feel so small at some point that she then doubled down and decided she was going to make everybody else feel small it's like that's not a choice I would make personally but I can connect that feeling and so I think yeah I think it's always a good idea to, to at least try But then it depends on the job. Some jobs really ask that of you. And then some jobs, you very much have the sense that you're just there as a jobbing actor and that they just want you to seem evil or seem, (laughs) you know, cruel. And in a way, I think that's okay too. But I'm I'm always obsessed with the, it makes me sound very uh, wanky actor, but I'm always obsessed with the prep. That's my favourite bit. And, and then once you get on set, it's like, it's just extra fun. But I, I always get really obsessed with the kind of the thinking about it all. This play, it was first performed in, I think it's 2004, starring Rachel yeah. Weisz and Paul Rudd, which, you know, these are mm-hmm. pretty big shoes to fill. And a previous star of the play also in Dublin went on to become your co-star, Killian Murphy, who you acted alongside in Peaky Blinders as... Mm the controversial character you just alluded to, Lady Diana Mitford. What was it like to take on the role of such a controversial real-life character and also to be part of such a huge, huge series? I mean, it was quite life-changing and quite overwhelming, I think, to get that job, just in the sense that 
I think a lot of the time, especially when you're starting out, there's a comfort in knowing like probably not too many people are going to see this. So there's room to basically comfortably fail if you mm. if you do or if you want to and try out different things. And I, de- I definitely think that it's it becomes a real job to turn off that part of your brain that becomes aware of the fact that lots of people will see it and mm. to just go and do the job like any other job. And that was definitely something I felt. Playing Diana was really interesting. And t- to be honest, I just find that whole part of history really interesting. And I didn't do history at school. And so I, f- I find that with any historical character, I always love, again, like the reading and the research and the and just the learning about a very interesting time in the world. And I think that that 10 years before the Second World War, which is when Series 6 of Peaky is set, is such an interesting time to learn about because I always just had this very <laughs> sort of uninformed idea of how the Second World War started. And actually, it was really interesting to read about the differences in, I suppose, opinion and ideology between the English aristocracy at the time and the working classes and what was going on in Germany and actually how Hitler managed to get into power in the first place. And it was fascinating to me because it, I think, mirrored a lot of what has been going on recently in America, especially, and with Trump and people like that, where there was a lot of propaganda, a lot of what we would now call fake news, and how he managed to basically sort of convert a whole country into believing that he was the answer to all those problems and so that I found really interesting and the Mitfords as a family were just so interesting because you know you had six sisters and you had one who became best friends with Hitler and the other one ran away to become a communist with her cousin who she then married and you had Nancy Mitford who became a really successful writer and she was sort of somewhere in the middle politically and just as a family I found that really interesting thinking god it's almost like nowadays how in some families you might have if you take Covid as an example you might have one sibling that's like triple vaccinated and completely that's their belief is like everything they've been told is right and Mm. safe and true and then you might have another sibling who's completely anti-vax completely anti-lockdown and it's just that sort of extremism the the polarities of that those views within family is I think make for really interesting stories basically yeah it was a really interesting family to kind of learn about and again she is someone who I have I think almost nothing in common with (laughs) but some somehow I found a way to I suppose find something about her that I could understand which was you know perhaps a need to feel or a desire to feel powerful in some way you know a des- which ultimately to me is a desire to be heard or a desire to be seen which i think everyone can identify with in some way yeah that was the root of it for me and then the rest was very much acting and <laughs> you know <laughs> saying things that would never come out of my mouth in a million years but i have to say as an actor those parts are often the funnest parts to play just because I think when you're playing characters who are just lovely people, obviously that's a lovely thing to be. But it's maybe as an actor slightly less interesting, if I'm allowed to say that. It's hard to be evil in real life, isn't it? Because there are yeah. often consequences or, or you hope there would be consequences. But I don't know, look at our government. Yeah, well, exactly. Apparently you are a trained violinist and pianist as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So have you got any plans to bring any of that to your... 
I have I have used piano. I did a film a few years back called Emma, which was a Jane Austen, yeah. and my character is a pianist, and I did all of the piano playing in that, and and that was just the most amazing experience because I'd slightly let it slip since being at music school. And then I got that job and it was a real catalyst in making me play the piano again. Violin was always like my second instrument that I didn't really care about very much. Mm. Obviously, it's a beautiful instrument, but piano was like my big love when I was studying. And so I'd love to do a film about a pianist or about somebody who plays the piano in some way they're quite hard to come by that was the thing I realized when I did Emma was like it's very uh rare to get first of all a role that suits you and then also a role that requires the exact instrument that you play you know it's like mm. it's actually quite I might have to write it or get somebody else to write it but no I'd love to and I'd love to I'd love to use singing more as well that's something I really miss and it's funny because in The Shape of Things one of the other actors that I'm working with Luke Newton who plays Adam he trained in musical theatre and he's done a lot of musicals and a lot of music. And it's been really nice to kind of work with him and be around him because it's reminding me of how lovely it is when you can do a job that uses like all of your big loves and skills and things. The Shape of Things is at the Park Theatre in Finsbury Park from the 24th of May. There are previews and it runs until the 1st of July. What mm-hmm. are you up to next? Have you got anything else that you can tell us about in the pipeline? I don't is the really boring answer to that. There are a couple of things that I can't talk about that one of them was supposed to happen last year and it's been pushed and now I think it's happening this year. But at the moment, I'm just focusing on the play and kind of, to be honest, it's such an intense experience. I've never done a play before and it's such an intense experience doing the play. I'm really looking forward to some time off already, which is... (laughs) Crazy to say since we haven't even started the shows yet, but I'm definitely going to be taking some time off just to like chill at home and be with the dogs and the cats. And I say dogs and cats, one dog, two cats. And hopefully this other film I've got will go later on in the year. But no, it'll be back to sort of being an self-employed actor again which I think will be quite nice (laughs) so where can we find you on social media to keep up to date with what what happens next as and when it is revealed I'm on Instagram that's the short answer I don't have Twitter but I am on Instagram and my Instagram name is Amber Andagram oh that's good a funny play on I say funny no that's good I like that I appreciate that Amber, thank you very much for chatting to me. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, that time of the week where we kickflip the patriarchy as we discuss all things women's sport. That was a skateboarding term, by the way. I'm pretty sure you can't use it in this context, but what the hey? Just because every day's a school day, a kickflip is uh, it's a trick whereby the skater flips the board around its lengthwise axis using the front of their foot. Thank you very much, surfertoday.com. Anyway, I mentioned skateboarding because of Great Britain's Sky Brown, who you might remember, made history when she became the youngest British summer Olympian, competing aged 13 in the Tokyo Olympics, where she won bronze. I should also add that back in February, she became Great Britain's first skateboarding world champion. She made the headlines again this week after winning the first world skateboarding tour event of the season. She finished four points clear of her competitors at the event in Argentina. She's 14 now, so, you know... She's doing okay. 
On the subject of another woman in sport who is doing all right, though admittedly not her best couple of weeks, Katie Taylor has said that she has no plans to retire in the wake of her first professional defeat last weekend. Taylor, who is undisputed lightweight champion of the world, challenged England's Chantelle Cameron, the undisputed world light welterweight champion, for her belt. And unfortunately for Taylor, she was unable to relieve Cameron of them after she won on a majority points decision. Taylor, who is 36 and suffered her first defeat in 22 professional bouts has dominated the sport becoming a household name since the 2012 Olympics she says she's looking forward to the rematch which is good news all round as far as boxing fans are concerned I'll quickly talk about some of the goings-on at the French Open, which got underway yesterday as I write this on Monday. There's not much point in me going into too much detail as the picture may well have changed dramatically by the time you hear this on Wednesday, but I will just mention some comments made by American Sloane Stevens. Stevens is, as you may well be aware, a black woman and has spoken out about the abuse endured by tennis players. As part of this year's tournament, organisers have offered players artificial intelligence tools to try to protect them from social media abuse, which if you look at the statistics around abuse suffered by A, female athletes and B, female athletes of colour can only be a good thing, right? The rationale behind it is to protect the mental well-being of athletes. Stevens, who beat 16th seed Karolina Pliskova, said that she had endured abuse throughout her career. And guess what? It's only getting worse. Another topic dominating discussion at the French Open in terms of the female draw, at least, is the ongoing invasion of Ukraine by Russia. Ukrainian player Marta Kostyuk was booed off court after losing 6-3, 6-2 to Belarusian Arena Sabalenka, refusing to shake her hand. I mean, that does make it sound a bit dramatic. She avoided shaking her hand, I think would be a more appropriate thing to say. She said that the people booing should be embarrassed, which, although I'm not sure how I feel about these issues being played out seemingly specifically in, in the women's draw, or at least that is what is, you know, generating the most headlines. I will say I'm inclined to agree with her on this one. It is pretty embarrassing. Finally, in happier news, the women's football season is drawn to a close. I mean, that's not happy, obviously, but, you know, we're going to talk about some winners in a minute. Bristol City have secured promotion to the WSL from the Championship, winning the league by just a point. Unlucky Birmingham. 10 points behind them, but a very respectable fourth place. Come on, you addicts. Charlton Athletic. Lovely stuff. It's Reading who will be subbed off, if you will, from the WSL to make room for Bristol after finishing the league with 11 points. It was a two-horse race at the business end of the table and Chelsea snuck in to pit Manchester United to the post after beating strugglers Reading 3-0. That is Chelsea's fourth successive title and as ever what a hero boss Emma Hayes is she marks the occasion by announcing it was gin o'clock it's Hayes's seventh league title with Chelsea who also won the FA Cup this year and all after emergency surgery earlier in the year which she had to recover from midway through the season as ever I mean I just think she's incredible right that is all for me this week I'll be back next time with more women's sport Welcome to Rated or Dated. Mickey, which film did we watch this week? Which also completes the sentence, I can't read this Tom Hanks book on this plane because it is too (laughs) big. Oh, listeners, what a joy it was to watch Hannah buy a book in the airport on our way to Rome and then find that it was too big for her to open on the plane. (laughs) Easy jet seats are that close together that a slightly large book, there wasn't enough room to read it. It just became extra hand luggage for you. Really heavy yeah. extra hand luggage. Yeah. Joyous.
This week we watched 1988's age change slash body swap comedy, Big. Directed by Penny Marshall, written by Gary Ross and Anne Spielberg, and starring Tom Hanks, Big was, well, massive. Meeting with commercial success, critical acclaim, and a couple of Oscar nominations. Big was huge for Penny Marshall. Just her second movie directing assignment, it made her the first female director to ever direct a film that made more than $100 million at the box office. Hey! Yeah, hooray! It also catapulted Hanks into the top flight acting ranks, making him the box office draw and critics' favourite we know and love today. And so it's kind of madness to think our hero might not have been played by Tom Hanks. Although first on the wish list, he was tied up with other projects when the offer came through. So Marshall asked several other big hitters of the 1980s, including Kevin Costner, Steve Gutenberg, and Dennis Quaid, who all said no. Want to know who said yes? Any guesses? I know this because I spoke to my brother yesterday. Robert De Niro. Indeed, Robert De Niro said yes. Wow. Jen's face is a picture of what the fuck. Wow. (laughs) But he later dropped out for cash reasons, and all that flip-flopping meant that Hanks was available. Phew. Because Hanks nails it as every man, every boy, Josh Baskin, a 12-year-old boy whose rash wish to be big means he wakes up with an adult body. Clearly Tom Hanks is a fine actor, but he had a little help capturing that childlike innocence. Marshall videotaped David Mosco, the actor who played Kid Josh, acting out all of the adult Josh scenes so that Hanks could study his mannerisms in each situation. Smart Penny, very smart. Big is certified 98% fresh by critics on Rotten Tomatoes, but its success surprised Hanks and his co-star Elizabeth Perkins. Why? Well, Big was released amid a glut of age change and body swap movies, including Vice Versa, Like Father Like Son, and 18 Again, which led them to believe it would get lost and go straight to video. (laughs) No, bye-bye $18 million budget, hello $150 million at the box office. And I'm going to end this section with possibly my favourite fact about the making of Big. Gary Bussey auditioned for the role of Josh, but Marshall, and I quote, didn't think he could pull off playing an adult. He was 43 at the time. (laughs) So, Hannah, Jen, tell me when you first saw Big and the place it has held in your heart ever since. Well, I, being slightly older than you, I was, uh, yeah, probably about 14 when this came Mm -hmm. out. Somebody probably bought it back from the video shop would be my guess. But it is one of two films that, We don't do Christmas films in our household, in the Dunleavy house. We do, however, always watch two films when they're on at Christmas, and Big was one of them, and the other one was Who Framed Roger Rabbit. So, yeah, I absolutely love it, despite a very, very obvious fault in it, which I'm (laughs) sure we will come to. I find it to be absolutely delightful. Interesting what you said. We will get to that. Uh, Yes, Jen? I think I watched it for the first time when I was about nine um so that would have been after it was after it came out on vhs like at a friend's house or something like that and i feel like we watched it quite a lot i feel like it was at that point that we watched it like the film du jour uh which then you know went on to be like i don't know my girl and greece and like various other things that that children of that age were watching yeah i think i really liked it i but i haven't watched it that much like in recent years 
that was going to be my next question before watching it for this rated or dated when was the last time you saw it because it had been a long time for me i honestly couldn't tell you i've no idea ages ago probably 15 years hmm. yeah okay. maybe yeah pro- probably about the same then yeah probably around the time that i worked out what the terrible thing they do <laughs> <in> this <laughs> is Okay, quick plot rundown. A 12-year-old Josh Baskin, played by David Moscow, is having a lovely time as an average 12-year-old boy, mostly hanging out with his best buddy Billy, Jared Rushton, and developing a slightly misogynistic interest in girls. While trying to impress his major crush, he's told he's too short for the Super Loops funfair ride and, dejected, makes a wish to be big on antique fortune teller machine Saltar Speaks. Be careful what you wish for, eh, Josh? As the next morning, Josh is still 12 in the head, but has the adult male body of a 30-year-old Tom Hanks. He's frightened, his mum's frightened, and Zoltar is gone. Having convinced Billy he is actually Josh, the two best mates take a trip to New York City to find out where Zoltar's going to be next. Bad news though, boys, that's going to take six weeks, and so Josh rents a room in a flop house and gets a job at the Macmillan Toy Company. Turns out a toy company makes a lot more sense through the eyes of a child, and Josh soon impresses the boss, Mr. McMillan, a glorious Robert Lodger, not only in the show-stealing big piano performance, but also with some genuinely great ideas for toys. He also impresses Susan, Elizabeth Perkins, unwittingly encouraging her to give up her grown-up inhibitions and love life again. They bounce, they romance, but we will talk about that <laughs> later. <Whoa>. <laughs> but the responsibilities and expectations of adulthood can swamp a person pretty quickly. And Josh fast loses his childlike joy at the world and starts along for his old, well, young life back. Luckily, Zoltar is found just in time and Josh transforms into a child again. Pure magic. So, I'm going to start with Hannah. Were you nervous rewatching for Rated or Dated? Oh my god, absolutely, yes. Because this film is absolutely, I would say, 98% perfect. And then just does this awful thing to its main female character in which it basically hoodwinks her into molesting a child and it's awful and the spectre of that really really loomed over me watching this because yeah way to be able potentially to ruin something that is perfect but I have to say Taking that outside of it, there is so much to enjoy in Big that it almost enabled me to, I don't know, gloss over that slightly. I tried not to think too hard about it, but yeah, I was really nervous because I fucking love Big. See, this is potentially controversial, but I think it's really well handled and not that icky. She just, she doesn't know that he's only 13. You think she's not going to think about that again later in her life? I think she's going to have a horrible time. And in the script, she was supposed to kiss him on the lips when they say goodbye. And Elizabeth Perkins was like, absolutely not. She now knows that he's 13. And so she kisses him on the forehead. Jen, were you nervous about that bit? Um, Yeah, I mean, like, the film doesn't hold, like, as special a place in my heart as it does, obviously, you guys. So, like, I, I do. I wasn't like, oh, it's going to ruin the film for me or anything like that. I was just like, well, it's gross. It's just, like, it's just, it's just a gross <laughs> premise. But, and I thought about this because I was like, well, she doesn't know he's thirteen. He looks of age. I said this to my mum. I was like, I think it's fine actually. He looks like old enough, blah blah blah. And then I said to her, but how many people have said that after a night out at like you know Colchester Hippodrome? She looked old enough, blah blah blah. So then it is very tricky, isn't it? 
it's a it's a moral swamp, isn't it? Mm. And I think Hannah's point that she, even if they decided to show it, and, and I think it's it's handled sweetly in in its way, but it's the fact that it will haunt Susan forever. Yeah. <clears throat> What's her next relationship? How's how's her trust levels going now? Mm. I will actually say something else though. Interestingly, almost as weirdly for me, the fact that Robert Loggia was for such a long time the guy from Big to me, mm. but in the interim has become the desperately just horrible psychopath Feech Lamana from The Sopranos in my head. I actually struggled a little bit with him. I was oh. like, it's weird to see him being nice. He's such a Fitch, he's such an amazing skin crawl character, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Such a fucking psychopath. Yeah. I kept waiting for him to say, you walk into that jail, you find the hardest fucker. And all of that he's stuff. amazing in The Sopranos, yeah. though, but he's also glorious in this. I think he's so good. The other duff note for me, and it is around Susan again, is the implication from John Hurd's character that Susan is where she is in the company because she slept her way to the top. Yeah. But I would imagine that actually men would have said that sort yeah. of shit. The 80s. In the 80s, yeah. I, okay. I just want to say something about their relationship. So one of the things that I found like more difficult watching it now is like I can see why he appeals to her because he's like fun and he's unencumbered by like the horrible boring shit of adult life that makes you like not fun anymore and and all of that stuff so I can kind of see the appeal there but I couldn't really see why she would appeal to him other than just like you know she's pretty or whatever because like wouldn't... I'm willing to have sex with him. Well, and he's 13. I know, but like, yeah. I just, I didn't understand. I couldn't really understand how that relationship would develop because you would have thought he would just think she was incredibly dull. She's not dull with him, though, is she? She is initially. They don't really have that much interaction until they're at the party, the glorious party scene. Mm. And yeah, and then she thinks it's something is happening and he's taken her home to play games rather than the emotional games she's used to. Hmm. She's very quickly fun with him, I think. The trampolining scene is just yeah. absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. Hmm. I will say, though, as a full-grown adult, <laughs> the uh, as a full-grown adult myself, <laughs> yeah, I right. would say... That's what Gary Boosie said. There's... <laughs> <laughs> I actually don't really see what the appeal of Josh, even as an adult, is to a full-grown woman, personally, mm. you know. But if your choice is him or John Hurd... <laughs> uh, well, I just, then nobody. I mean, that's the choice I've quite happily taken in my own life. If the choice is a man who sleeps in bunk beds or nobody, then nobody, <laughs> please. Yeah, the bunk beds would be quite hard to... um to Yeah. Okay, we've got the icky, the, the icky bit out of the way, I think. Can we talk about the magic? I have a list of yeah. moments that are just magical for me, but before I wang on, what are your favourite moments in Big? Well, I mean, obviously the piano, but that yeah. seems like quite cliche to no, say. because that all. is not at all. That is absolutely delightful. Also, him eating whatever it is that he eats. The baby corn. Out. Or, yeah. or, or the caviar. Or the baby the corn. The caviar, yeah. When he does the, ah, 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 that thing and... <laughs> And just that whole tuxedo he comes dressed in. Yeah, that is also <laughs> completely delightful. Yeah, I mean, yeah, almost almost anything that he does. I love that scene where he, he basically like tears into that, you know, car that turns into a robot that turns into a house. Yeah. And it's just like, what the hell is this? I don't get it. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, awfully, when 
he does have sex with her when he comes back into the office and he just has that ridiculous <laughs> that <man>. swagger. <laughs> it is, even though it's horrible, it is really funny or really delightful at the same time. The scene where he's in the office with all the toys and he's going like, <laughs> and just playing and like having fun. I would add to those, because you've both ticked my list, the scene where he and Billy are in his room and they've just bought loads of junk food and loads of toys <laughs> and they play with a silly string and they're just having the best time as kids, even if one of them has got a rug of chest hair. <laughs> It's quite hard when it's a film that's adorable to find stuff to talk about because I feel like we've covered its flaws, we've covered its joys. Uh, so I've decided to ask you a question. Tom Hanks was nominated but did not win the Oscar for Big. He has won two Oscars. What for? Ooh. Philadelphia and Forrest Gump. Correct, Hannah. In that order, year after year. Do you want to know fun facts? Yes, please. He is the only person, apart from Spencer Tracy, to win two Oscars, like, on the bounce. Back to back. Interesting. Yeah. And I kind of wanted to talk about Forrest Gump. Now, I have to do this really tentatively because I haven't seen Forrest Gump, and I'm going to be honest with you. Really? I don't really want to see Forrest Gump. I mean, if it comes up here, obviously I'll watch it, but I'm not really keen. But it struck me in the awkward scene in Big. Actually... Is that any different to the relationship that Forrest has with Sally Field's character? Not Sally Field's oh, character. Oh, sorry. It's uh, Robin Wright Penn. It's interesting because I had never seen Forrest Gump at all. And when I was in New York, in Times Square, I was in New York with my nephew, there's a shop called uh, something shrimp shop or a restaurant. The Bubba Shrimp Company. Mm. That's it. And I didn't know what it was. And my nephew was like, what do you mean? It's from Forrest Gump. And I said, I'd never seen Forrest Gump. And we did a film swap, whereas I promised to watch Forrest Gump if he promised to watch Pride, which he loved. I was a little bit like, I didn't really, I I never wanted to watch Forrest Gump for a number of reasons. One of which is I can't bear Sally Field. Uh, And one of which was, from what I knew about it, the issue of, you know, is he able to consent and all of that. And I don't, I mean, Forrest Gump, whatever it is that appeals to other people, I was right not to watch it because it, it didn't appeal to me at all. So in answer to your question, no, I don't think there's much difference yeah. on who's able to. Yeah. Josh is almost like a proto-gump, right? But but more endearing and, and sweet because he's a kid. Yeah. I think there is a difference from the perspective that, like, actually she knows what she's doing in Forrest Gump, whereas obviously Elizabeth Perkins's character doesn't know what she's doing. So it is different in that sense. Also, is Forrest Gump actually childlike? I don't know. I don't know. They'd budge a couple of things because also I can't. Well, when I watched Forrest Gump, it seemed really obvious to me that Jenny had AIDS. But when I googled yeah. it, she she didn't. Really? So, what does it say? There's uh, she had some mystery disease or something but it seemed pretty obvious to me I think like, she had or AIDS. seemed when I was watching it that yeah. she had AIDS so it, it fudges a number of things would be my point about about Forrest Gump um, but you know people's most famous performances aren't always their best ones by any stretch of the imagination because Tom Hanks is, is obviously brilliant but I would say that Forrest Gump is not an example of how brilliant he can be Big is a better example Captain Phillips is a better example I don't love Forrest Gump to be you fair, don't, oh. it's, it's, it's just it's fucking long. 
is one mm-hmm. of my main criticisms of it. Let's, but let's get back to the film that came in at a snappy one hour forty four minutes. Yeah. Yes, please. Yeah. Uh, he is just magnificent in Big. I think like the mm. fact that he nearly didn't play Josh is it's crackers to me. I, I just you know imagine De Niro in that role. Oh my god! <laughs> I actually I actually had to Google that because my brother told me that yesterday. I was like, no, I think you've misunderstood that. <laughs> that can't possibly be the case. How would that be? How old was yeah. De Niro? I mean, we been? wouldn't be rating or dating it because it would have been infinitely forgettable. And yeah. But I just think every scene he's in, which is pretty much every scene, Tom Hanks is just absolutely nailing it. You truly believe he is a 13-year-old trapped mm. in an adult body. Isn't that all men? <laughs> oh, there she is. <laughs> he's um, he's an extremely charismatic actor, isn't he? Like he just is, I think, in, in almost everything that he does, with the exception of Elvis, from which I think he's a bit shitting, to be honest. But anyway, um, yeah, I think he's just a very, very charming like he's extremely charming in this film, but I think he is just a really charming actor in general. Well, I mean, Hannah loves his books, even if they just. Um, <laughs> he's a very charming away. writer. Too big, they're too big, Tom. They're too heavy. They're too. They're too physically large, <laughs> and they've got too many words on every page. It was really small font. Do not buy it in an airport, people. Interesting. Maybe this will be your answer, Hannah. But I wondered what you would ask Saltar for. What would I ask now, or what? What would I have asked when I was thirteen? Oh, let's let's have both. What would you have asked when you were thirteen, and what would you ask now at uh, forty-nine? Uh, well, I think when I was thirteen, I probably either would have wanted to be a boy or taller. Either of those. Did you say thirty-nine? Forty-nine. Okay. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. To be thirty-nine. <laughs> <laughs> I probably asked for a decent length of time left. Is probably what I would ask. So tough, all given the way this year's been going for me. Oh, uh, Jen, thirteen-year-old me would have uh, to throw more inappropriateness into the um, into the situation. Thirteen-year-old me would have asked to have been in a relationship with Ronan Keating from Boyzone, and um, <laughs> and forty-year-old uh, Jen would ask for a bit more sleep, please. I just, just like to get a bit more <laughs> sleep. I'd have wished to wake up in the body of Tom Hanks. Obviously, <laughs> it looks like it was really good fun. Uh, maybe I could have one of those big walking pianos. That'd be cracky. I went on one of those at the weekend at, at Colchester Did Zoo. You? By the way, there was one in the soft play area. It was a lot less grandiose than the one in this film. Let me tell you. But yeah. Great time. What did you play? Uh, I tried to play Frere Jacques because they had a little list on the wall of uh, songs you could do. But I'm telling you that their Frere Jacques was not my like. No, it wasn't me. It was them. It was definitely them. The notes were wrong. <laughs> uh, I love the fun fact that. Lodger and Hanks turned up to record that and they noticed that they had sort of stunt doubles in their clothes and they were like, hang on, no, uh-uh. we're going to get this. We're going <laughs> to nail it. So they printed it out and they practiced and practiced and practiced and they nailed it in one take because they were determined to do it themselves, which is just, it's just, it feels as magical as the rest of the film. They do fuck it up a couple of times, mm. but that, that would happen if you were doing it. Yeah, exactly. Because you're quite hard fun. to use, as I discovered yes. at Colchester Zoo. They're quite hard to use. You've got to hop quite a lot quite long isn't it mm. i don't think i could do it i think my legs aren't long enough we'd have to find you a tune like three blind mice where it's all yeah. quite close together we're gonna make this happen hannah don't you worry it'll be okay. fine it'll be fine so yeah i think all i've got left to ask really is big rated or dated yeah notwithstanding inappropriateness uh but i think hannah's right i think you can actually like kind of gloss over that 
So let's gloss over it and say, yeah, rated. Uh, yeah, I'm going to say rated, even though I don't think that anyone making this film now would make that mistake again. So technically it's dated. But yeah, rated. Rated. Oh, I'm not even going to put a caveat on it. <laughs> Woo, caution to the wind. Who's next? What are we watching? It's me next. And Jen has already mentioned it. Mm. In oh. this rated or dated. Grace. I got chills, they're multiplying. Yeah. Load up the pussy wagon. <laughs> oh, yeah. I wonder how it's going to fare. <laughs> <laughs> Standard issue for all women.